0: All right, good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2? Now I see some new faces, welcome, and uh, just to review briefly, because we have done this a couple times already, but we have entered into the second major section of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Now, why these seven? I mean, there were other larger churches and more important churches than these. Why did Jesus choose these seven? Well, it was because these seven churches contained conditions that could be applied spiritually and uh, practically, allowing Jesus to use them to address his church as a whole throughout history, as we've been looking at it. Uh, in a way that would be beneficial to the church's purity and growth going forward. These are, ver- these are remarkable churches for a lot of reasons. We've been looking at these. They had, first of all, a local application. They were seven real churches that existed at the time that Jesus dictated these letters to John, the first century, and uh, Jesus used them as a kind of report card. Given to each of these churches to show them how they were doing in his sight. Number two, they had an historic application. These seven churches, in a symbolic way, speak of the different periods of church history from the first century through the rapture, which is the end of the church age. Therefore, the order that they appear in chapters two and three is significant as we've been working our way through this. Number three, these seven churches have a timeless application. They speak to all churches in all ages and all places throughout the world, each having its own distinctive character. In other words, Ephesus is the loveless church. Smyrna, the persecuted church. Pergamus the compromising church. Thyatira, the idolatrous church. Sardis, the dead church. Philadelphia, the faithful church. And Laodicea, the apostate church. And number four they have a personal application this is where we live i mean we are the church of jesus christ not the building we are the church of jesus christ these letters guys are a mirror a mirror that every christian should look should look into from time to time where we use them to examine our own individual walk and in relationship with the lord where are we with him is our walk kind of loveless is it compromising is it dead is it faithful or is it a combination Of several of these we should be looking at these letters and and as a mirror and say well I see in me some of these traits I see in me some of these traits and uh, I need to get this right with the Lord and so on now last time in our study in the book of Revelation we got as far as the letter to the church of Thyatira which we said was an adulterous church symbolically the church of Thyatira represents that period of church history from about 600 to 1500 AD, a period commonly called the Dark Ages or the Medieval Period. So what's in view here, guys, is really the Medieval Roman Catholic Church, the Medieval Roman Catholic Church. As we said last time, this is the longest letter addressed to the smallest and most insignificant church of the seven, proving that you can have, you know, big problems in a small church. I think sometimes some pastors think, you know, I'd love to just move out to the country and pastor one of those little country churches. Just love the Lord and just where everything is like, you know, Norman Rockwell, perfect, that kind of, that's a fallacy. Sometimes some of the smallest churches can have some of the biggest problems that we're going to see tonight. But Jesus takes a hard line with his church. I mean, there are times when he sounds actually not just stern, but harsh, because of the seriousness of the sin they were involved in. So, verse 18, and we're just reviewing still a little from last week. Jesus said to the angel and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? Now the angel would be a reference to the pastor in the city of Thyatira. What do we know about the city of Thyatira? Well, we don't know much about the city. We know that it was about 30 or 40 miles inland from Pergamus. Now remember. These seven churches were on a really a male route. It was a kind of an elongated circuit. You start in Ephesus. The next church was Smyrna. These were kind of near the coast or right on the coast. So Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus was at the top. By the time you come to Thyatira, you're already starting to work your way down now back towards Ephesus. All right. So we know this church was about 30 or 40 miles inland from Pergamos and then it sat in a valley which meant it was not really a good strategic location from which to defend this church. And so consequently, it never really became a metropolis. It never really became a big megacity because cities and valleys are a problem. They're indefensible. I mean, you want to put a city on a hill where your enemies have to climb the hill to get at you, where they're kind of attacking you from the bottom, and you can defend the city from above. Thyatira wasn't like that, and so consequently... It had big problems, all until Rome annexed them in about 190 BC, and that brought peace to the region. And because they were located on a major trade route between Pergamus, that went from Pergamus to Sardis, overnight they became a commercial center. Not a very strong city militarily, but they went on to become a fairly great commercial center. We talked last week about the dye, the purple dye they were famous for producing, all right? And um, a purple dye that was the rage. I mean, back in those days, everyone wanted to dress in purple. It was the color of kings, of queens, of royalty. Everyone wants to look like royalty, all right? So uh, they had a very expensive dye that they they manufactured. And we read about a gal in Acts chapter 16 whose name was Lydia. Uh, She lived in Thyatira. She had a business of selling purple uh, dyed garments. And uh, she ran into Paul in Philippi when he was ministering there. She gets saved and uh, takes the gospel back to Thyatira. Some believe she was even instrumental in in founding the church, maybe. Okay. But uh, you can go back and review that from last week. We spent more time on that last time. So now Jesus moved into the commendation. The commendation, verse 19. He said, "'I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience.'" And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So this church had problems, but they had a lot of good works too. And we talked about those in detail last time. But then after the commendation, the Lord moved into the condemnation. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, guys, the main problems that Jesus addresses concerning this church didn't come from without. In other words, they weren't external attacks like uh, Smyrna got from the Jews and the Romans, okay? This church dealt with problems and attacks that came from within. Not from without, but from within. It's kind of like what Pergamos was going through, all right? The church was not being injured. This church was not being injured from the outside, but it was being injured from the inside through false doctrine and idolatrous practices. And if it's a type looking forward to the Roman Catholic Church, which we believe it is, uh, that church continues to be injured from the inside. We're going to talk about the Roman Catholic Church tonight pretty extensively. And I want you to realize or remember up front that I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. My wife and I were both raised in the Roman Catholic Church, went to Catholic school, we were married in the Catholic Church. I don't hate Catholics. I have a big problem with the Roman Catholic Church, but I don't hate Catholics. There's a lot of good Roman Catholics. There are those that know the Lord in the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to see that as we finish this letter. But um, there's a lot of things that are going on inside the Catholic Church that are injuring a lot of people. And it goes beyond the sexual abuses by the priests against people that they have damaged for life because of the sexual things that they have done. Uh, By the way, it's not limited to the Catholic priesthood. There are Protestant ministers who do terrible things too, okay? But I just want you to know that this was a church that was being injured from within through false doctrine, pagan practices, and so on. And and one of the people that was instrumental in bringing this into the church was a gal that is mentioned here, uh, a woman in that church that was calling herself a prophetess. Now, guys, that in and of itself wasn't wrong. Philip the evangelist had four daughters that were prophetesses. Uh, You can read about that in Acts 21, verse 9, all right? And that's a hard word to say, prophetesses, okay. Uh, but uh, So that, that wasn't the problem. The problem was that the church in Thyatira wasn't exercising any discernment or judgment in what she was prophesying. We are commanded in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. To let two or three prophesy and then let the other Christians in the church judge. Judge based on what? Judge whether it comes, it's consistent with God's word, what they're saying. You always judge any prophecy by the word of god okay john said beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are of god many false prophets have gone out into the world just because somebody says thus says the lord we shouldn't drop everything and say oh praise god what do you got to tell me you listen and make sure you compare it with what is already in god's word that it lines up if not reject it all right reject it but um This church apparently wasn't being discerning. They were just taking what this woman was saying as gospel, as if it was definitely the Word of God. Today we have many in the church who are not only acting like prophets, they call themselves prophets. And they're going around saying thus says the Lord. And if you try to challenge what they're saying because it doesn't line up with the Word of God, usually they shoot back or their followers shoot back, touch not the Lord's anointed. Well, first of all, I would never touch anybody in the sense of laying a hand on them but if you're telling me I can't challenge what somebody is saying in the name of the Lord that's completely wrong we are commanded in Scripture to uh, test all things hold fast to that which is good which means that which is of God that which lines up with his word a church that doesn't do that is opening itself up to any wind of doctrine And any charlatan, any false prophet who comes around saying, Thus says the Lord. So we have to be careful, especially in these last days. Jesus said, The closer we got to his return, the more the spiritual deception would be ramping up. Now more than ever, we need to be discerning. Now more than ever, the Church of Jesus Christ needs to be testing everything that anyone is saying, especially from a pulpit be a Berean. You know, don't take what I say is gospel. Listen, go home, make sure you check it against the Word of God to make sure I'm telling you the truth. That's what you're supposed to do. Apparently, though, this woman was claiming that she had some new revelation from God that it was all right for Christians to be members of the guilds. Now, we've talked about the guilds. They were the forerunners of our trade and labor unions, all right? And archaeologists have confirmed that Thyatira was loaded with guilds there were the goldsmith guilds and the leather worker guilds and they were everywhere and this was the main problem that was affecting the church it was these guilds and the problem was that if you all these guilds had patron gods and goddesses every day they would pledge allegiance to their god whether it was apollo or or uh, you know or zeus or somebody else Of course, Christians wouldn't do that, at least not the spirit-filled ones. Smyrna, we know that they were really poor because they wouldn't compromise on their faithfulness to God. They remained faithful and wouldn't pledge allegiance, uh, worship a deity. You know, people say, well, you're not really worshiping the deity. Come on, you know that you love Jesus, but just mouth the word so that, you know, this is apparently what she was saying, it's okay to be a member of a guild. In fact, she might have even said, "So what if the pagans are worshipping Apollo?" because there was one temple in Thyatira. They weren't an overly religious town, but they had one temple to Apollo. He was the sun god. And I see I can just hear her saying, "So what if they're all worshipping Apollo the sun god? In your heart, you're worshipping Jesus, the son of God." You know, we can justify just about anything if we try hard enough, but are we really honoring the Lord? Are we really being faithful to him? I understand. You know, you have to, you know, I can just hear her. Look, it's okay to be a member of the, you know, if you're not a member of the guild, how can you survive? How can you provide for your family? Now go along, okay? It doesn't matter what you're saying with your mouth. It's what's in your heart, right? And so this is what, and apparently she backed it up by saying, God told me to tell you it was okay. He doesn't expect you to, you know, not be able to provide for your families. He knows your heart. He knows you love him. And this apparently was what she was saying. In essence, guys, and this is the heart of the letter. In essence, she had mixed the worship of the true God with the paganism of her day. And the final product, at least for the church or the Christians in Thyatira, was idolatry. Verse 20 You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. As we said last week, a lot of pagan worship did involve sexual immorality. A lot of these gods were fertility gods and goddesses and they were worshiped through the sex act. In fact, in Corinth on the Acropolis was the temple of Aphrodite and it was run by a thousand temple priestesses who were nothing more than professional prostitutes. And they came down into the city every night to ply their trade and the money was used for the upkeep of the temple. This was very common in the ancient world. And so a lot of times the worship of these pagan gods did involve sexual immorality. However, the Greek word is bigger than that. It's not just sexual immoral. That might be a part of it. The, 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 the Greek word could be translated, as we saw last time from the King James Version, uh, spiritual fornication. Spiritual fornication is simply unfaithfulness to God. We have been wed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are worshiping other gods, that's like committing adultery. That's like being spiritually unfaithful. To our true love, supposed to be Jesus Christ. Part of it was, not only did they have to start every day by pledging allegiance to whatever patron god was the god of their particular guilt, but every so often there was a great feast that was uh, that was uh, uh, held for for these gods. Okay, and. Um, sacrifices would be brought and people would bring all kinds of animal sacrifices, which were sacrificed to the various gods and goddesses and then the meat was eaten at a great feast all right everybody got together they had a big barbecue basically but here's the idea In the ancient world they believed if you ate with somebody you were becoming one with them the idea was look the same piece of bread that that they're eating and that you're eating from Uh, You're connected now. You're becoming one with each other. That's why they wouldn't break bread or eat with their enemies. They don't want to become one with their enemies. But the same applied to the gods and goddesses they worship. If an animal was sacrificed to one of these pagan deities and then everybody joined in on a big feast and ate the animal together, they believed they were not only becoming one with each other, but one with the deity. One with the deity. And this was the problem, all right? She was trying to justify why it was okay to be a part of these guilts. And this was what was going on, pledging allegiance to a pagan god, uh, having a, a sacrifice to these deities at different times throughout the year, and then a big feast where you were eating from the same animal as, uh, as the, was was offered to this deity and so on. It's not likely that this woman was actually named Jezebel since I don't think any parent in their right mind who understood who Jezebel really was from the Old Testament would name their daughter Jezebel any more than they would name their son Judas, right? I mean, you know, there are some names that are pretty much tainted. Benedict, Adolf, those, I think those have been, you know, cast to the, into the dust heap of, of, of history, okay? I believe the name is symbolic. I believe that Jesus gave her this nickname, Because she was doing the same things that Jezebel in the Old Testament had done. Now, guys, we have to get into the Old Testament to understand what was going on back then. We we, we really need to, you know, first let me just say this, okay? I know sometimes history, but we have to if we're going to fully understand this letter and the other ones. Jezebel was the idolatrous queen of Israel who seduced Israel into adding, listen, Baal worship, my pastor used to pronounce it Baal worship. I'm not saying it that way. I don't like Baal. Probably the right way to say it, but Baal, okay? But she seduced Israel into adding Baal worship to their religious ceremonies. You can check that out, 1 Kings chapters 16 through 19. And what she did was she combined, this is the hideous thing, okay? If she had just tried to replace the worship of the true God, with a false system. That would have been one thing, right? She was too clever for that. What she did was she took both and tried to merge them so that now the worship of the true God was being supplemented with the worship of Baal, who was a fertility god, okay? We're going to fully understand this letter. It becomes vital for us to understand who Jezebel was and what she was all about. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidon, and priest of Eshtar. We talked about Eshtar last week, okay? He was the king of Sidon, Ethbaal, his his name incorporated the the god, okay? He was also the priest of the goddess Eshtar. She was a fertility goddess. Uh, By the way, Eshtar is another name for Semiramis. And history records that one time Thyatira, the city, was called Semiramis. There's a lot of paganism that this city from its, you know, its beginnings, okay? But uh, his daughter, Ethbaal, his daughter Jezebel married Ahab, king of Israel. That's how she became queen, of course. And their union, I like to call it that they were the demonic duo of the Old Testament, because their union led to what the Bible itself describes as the worst period in Israel's history. But in particular, there is an incident recorded in 1 Kings chapter 21 of how Jezebel acquired some land wrongfully that causes many commentators to see in the letter of Thyatira a reference to the Roman Catholic Church of the medieval period. Let me explain the story. You can read it on your own at your leisure. 1 Kings 21, Ahab lived in the palace of the northern kingdom. He was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And there was a piece of land right next to the palace that he wanted for a vegetable garden, right next to the palace, a perfect location, Right. So he goes to the owner. The owner was a man by the name of Naboth and proposes this deal with him. He said, look, I want to buy your vineyard. And I'd like to make it a vegetable garden, so I'll give you whatever it's worth in money. Or if you want, I can give you a, another uh, piece of land, another vineyard that is of, of greater value somewhere else in my kingdom. What do you say? And and, uh, Na- uh, and um, Naboth said, well, king, it's my inheritance. I, ca- I can't sell you my inheritance. It's come down my family for generations, right? I, I'm sorry, but thanks, but no thanks. Well, Ahab goes back home, and he lays in bed, and he's pouting. He turns his face to the wall. He won't eat. He's pouting. Jezebel, here, you, know, you, you really know who was running this family. Jezebel hears about it, comes upstairs, and says, what's going on? What's wrong? Well, I went to Naboth, and he told her the whole story, how that Naboth wouldn't do the deal, and he wanted this piece of ground for his vegetable garden. And, and Jezebel says, what is wrong with you? Aren't you the king? Get up, have some dinner. I'll take care of it. So she writes letters in Ahab's name, sends it to the leaders of the of the town that Naboth lives in, saying to these leaders, Look, call a fast, bring everyone together. Like a, a, it's like it's going to be a big celebration. Make Naboth the the uh, guest of honor. All right, and then at one point, have a couple of worthless guys stand up and say, We heard Naboth blaspheme God and the king. And when you hear this, take them out, have them stoned. And then let me know when this is all taken, it's all completed. Well, I don't know, a few days, a few weeks later, she gets word from the leaders of this town that uh, Naboth is dead. She tells the king, get up, go down, and lay claim to that piece of property because Naboth is dead. There is a classic title for this very procedure that comes to us out of history, where lands were acquired by the Church through the use of false accusers who brought against innocent landowners false charges of heresy in order to execute them and steal their land. There's a name for that. We call it the Inquisition. The Inquisition. These were horrible atrocities committed by the Church in the name of Christ during what we commonly call the Dark Ages, which is why many commentators see in this letter a portrayal of what the Roman Catholic Church did for years, for, for 900 years. Consequently, guys, the Catholic Church is extremely wealthy due to um, extremely wealthy from this practice, how they uh, had many people brought in on trumped-up charges that they had blasphemed God, and, uh, of course, they had people that were paid off to lie, uh, witnesses and all. And then these people were taken out and killed, and then their land was, uh, was uh, taken by the church. This happened for, as I said, 900 years, from about 600 A.D. to 1500. And because of it, the, the Catholic Church today is extremely wealthy due to all their land and financial holdings. Vast amounts of money and property and treasures were accumulated by the church using this practice, as well as wealth being accumulated through the selling of indulgences. Indulgences, And indulgence amounted to forgiveness in advance. So, for example, if you're going to go to a feast, we would say a party today. If you're going to go to a feast uh, this Saturday night, you could buy an indulgence from a priest beforehand, and thus be pre-forgiven, pre-forgiven for any ensuing sin, drunkenness, adultery, fornication, idolatry. You know, it was all covered then. You bought your forgiveness in advance. During this time, the doctrine of purgatory was also developed, which stated one could speed up the process of the purging of a deceased a loved one's soul, because that's what purgatory uh, believes or teaches. that or the church teaches about purgatory, that uh, if a person dies, a Catholic, and they haven't done enough good works, they go into purgatory and they have to pay for, their sins have to be purged, uh, purgation purged, uh, for who knows how long. It could be a few few days, millions of years. They don't, nobody knows. But the church used that as a guilt trip against loved ones and said, look, how can you let your godly Aunt Marie burn in the fires of purgatory don't you want to do something that she would get released sooner well of course well then they had you can buy an indulgence and that would work off time it would you know she, she time would be taken off of, of, of whatever time she was going to be spending in purgatory and by the way purgatory is a catholic doctrine is not true okay just to get that on the table all right Uh, I know you guys believe that, but uh, maybe some watching don't know that, all right? Purgatory was completely made up by the church, and they, they made a lot of money from purgatory, not only from the selling of indulgences. But uh, also because they, they taught, the church taught that you could buy candles and light candles for these dead, departed loved ones, and that would take time off of their sentence in purgatory. And then later on, you could really take time off of a loved one's time in purgatory through a mass card. The church still sells mass cards today. You buy a, a mass card, and, a, and then a, a mass is said for your departed loved one, and this takes time off of their sentence in purgatory. But guys, as Satan corrupted a large segment of the church by marrying Christianity with paganism, the result being it was the birth of the Roman Catholic Church, which did not start with Peter. That's a different sermon. This eventually led to a civil war because you had a lot of devout Roman Catholics. I mean, these folks are really saved. They really love God. Martin Luther was one of them, okay? And um, they couldn't deal with this uh, corruption. You know, Martin Luther was at one time an Augustinian Catholic monk. And he always dreamed of someday saving up enough money to go to Rome, to see the holy city. He had never seen it. But he had it built up in his mind as this, this holy place on earth, the holiest place on earth, right? And he wanted to go there, and he wanted to see it for himself well one day he got the well, one time he got the chance and he was appalled at what he saw the level of corruption you know rome was called the city of bastards because of how many children were born out of wedlock to priests and popes and nuns and so on it was a very ungodly place and then you add to that the selling of indulgences and mass cards and all these other things and um, this eventually led to a civil war within the church not just for martin luther although at one point uh october 31st to 1517 he nailed his 95 theses 95 reforms to the to the uh, uh, castle church door in wittenberg uh, and the protestant reformation was launched but he wasn't the only one there were others that were fighting the church and broke away from the church uh, we call it the protestant reformation we'll talk more about that when we get to the letter of Sardis because that letter has in view the Protestants that came after or out of the Catholic Church, right? But um, in the days of Martin Luther, the church had become, as one author quoted, a circus of corruption using every scam it could think of to fill the coffers of the church from the money sacks of the gullible. It was just amazing. Uh, author Dave Hunt explains, and I quote, There were tiny vials of true milk from the Virgin Mary's breasts, pickled fingers and toes of this or that saint. Enough pieces of wood in Europe venerated as parts of the true cross of Christ to build a cathedral. Even toenails of saints were worshipped by the deluded devout. Peter's toes were uncommonly prolific. There were enough certified trimmings in Europe's cathedrals of... of, of, of St. Peter's toe clippings to fill a gunny sack, he said. The biggest scam was selling indulgences to release deceased relatives from purgatory. And who would refuse to buy Aunt Marie's release from the flames? From such blood money, St. Peter's Basilica was repaired and expanded to its present form, end quote. They used a lot of this money to, you know, really build and beautify St. Peter's Cathedral. Look, Just a little more background on Jezebel. That's because Jesus mentions this woman by name, calling her Jezebel. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 18, and then in chapter 44, verses 15 to 30, there is an expression that Jeremiah uses, the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven. It's a Babylonian phrase. Jezebel allowed herself to be worshipped as the queen of heaven. A title title given to a Babylonian goddess named Semiramis, who was the wife of Nimrod, who together founded the whole Babylonian system of pagan worship. Pagan worship. All the way back to the days of the Tower of Babel. The worship of the Queen of Heaven was something that God forbid. Something that God forbid. Read Jeremiah chapter 7 and 44. But it was a practice that continued down through the centuries and has come down through the centuries to us, through the Roman Catholic, when I say to us, I mean it's here, okay? Uh, not that we participate in it, but uh, something God forbid back in the days of Jeremiah, but it was before that even. And yet it, was, it continued to be practiced, the worship of the Queen of Heaven all the way down through the centuries, kept alive primarily by the Roman Catholic Church, but there are others who call themselves Christians, persons and groups who venerate Mary. Even in a lot of Protestant circles, Mary has been elevated to a place of veneration. They would never say they worship her, but that's kind of what it is. Not just the Catholic Church, but they're the main culprit. They have continued this worship of the Queen of Heaven in the form of Mary worship a title that the Roman Catholic Church has actually bestowed upon the Virgin Mary. Years ago, um, when I was, uh, well, probably when my mom and dad got married, in those days it was very common for someone to present to a new newlywed couple a big family Bible. These were big Bibles, and they were designed to sit on your coffee table. It was a family Bible, okay? And I remember looking at this thing for many years, when I got saved, I actually started opening it up and I started looking through it. Now, uh, it, it was uh, a Bible that had many beautiful pictures, hand-painted pictures, and um, you'd see like uh, the, the Garden of Eden, and God created Adam and Eve, and you'd see Adam and Eve and the serpent and so on, and you turn a few pages and you see Noah's Ark and the animals being led in to the Ark. This is a Catholic Bible now, I want to make sure I made that clear. Uh, and by every picture, there was a scripture where that picture was taken, you know, where they painted it from, okay? And this went all through the Bible. And you get a New Testament, and you, you see Jesus feeding the 5,000, or uh, you know his Sermon on the Mount, and everything was beautifully painted, and you had a little scripture reference, all except the last two pictures. The last two pictures in this Bible were the Assumption of Mary, and then God, Jesus, putting a crown on her head, declaring her queen of heaven. By those two pictures, there was no scripture references because it's not in the Bible. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary didn't really die, but when she came to the end of her life and her usefulness for God, she was taken bodily up into heaven, never died. And then when she got there, Jesus placed on her head the crown, uh, uh, pronouncing her queen of heaven. This is not a biblical thing. It's a Babylonian thing. But the church has embraced it. The, church, the Catholic Church is actually a combination of ancient uh, pagan Babylonianism and Christianity. Just like Mormonism is a combination of Christianity and false doctrine, they blended it together. The Roman Catholic Church is a hybrid of ancient Babylonian beliefs and practices coupled with Christianity. In that regard, guys, it is an abomination to God because it combines the worship of the true God with paganism. The very thing Israel fell into back in the Old Testament with Jezebel, how that she added to the worship of the true God of Israel, uh, the worship of Baal. That's really what's in view here, okay? A mixture of the true with the false, not replacing one with the other, but combining both, because that way the false is legitimized And the true, well, you still got the true there, you know. This goes all the way back to Semiramis, the wife of Nimrod. You can check that out in Genesis 11. This could be the reason Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God in this letter, the only time that uh, title is used of him. This could be why Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God. He's coming against the worship of the Queen of Heaven. And so because of all of this, guys, many have seen in this letter a strong inference to the Roman Catholic Church, not to mention the name Thyatira means continual sacrifice. The name Thyatira means continual sacrifice. Now that's important because as we, as we have already said, each name of these seven churches is significant and pertinent to the overall letter Jesus dictated to them. Once again, Thyatira means continual sacrifice. You see, the Catholic Church teaches that during the Mass, the elements, the bread and the wine, are transformed into the literal, physical body and blood of Jesus Christ in a process they call transubstantiation. The word transubstantiation means change of substance change of substance. After the bread and wine are transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ at the celebration of the Mass, they are then offered to God as a new sacrifice of Christ, ending with the priest saying, let us pray that our sacrifice is acceptable to God. This means in Roman Catholic theology, the priests literally, or so they believe, literally handle Christ's body and that the Mass is a constant reenactment or redoing of Christ's sacrifice. They think that the continual sacrifice of Christ is what really brings the grace required for salvation, which is in direct contrast to what Jesus declared from the cross when He cried, it is finished, John 19, verse 30. In other words, the price is paid, the work is done. Period. Again, Revelation 2, verses 20 and 21. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and things, and eat things sacrificed to idols. That's, of course, idolatry. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, her spiritual fornication, her unfaithfulness to me. And she did not repent. The church is the bride of Christ and must be faithful to her bridegroom no matter what. Idolatry is spiritual fornication, it is unfaithfulness to Jesus. You have been betrothed to him, and if you give worship to anything or anyone other than to him, it is spiritual unfaithfulness. It is adultery, or fornication, since we have been betrothed, have not been yet uh, married completely, but betrothed. Once again, guys, the Catholic Church teaches that during the Mass, the elements, the bread and wine, are transformed into the literal, physical body and blood of Jesus Christ called the Eucharist. The Eucharist is idolatry because it is reducing God to an image or substance for the purpose of worship. God said in his word very specifically, he said, you are not to make anything to represent me, whether it's up in the the stars of heaven or on the earth or under the earth. You are not to make anything uh, to be a likeness for me. It is forbidden. If you do so, it is idolatry. God said it very clearly, right? After the bread... Which is the wafer, is converted into the body of Christ during the Catholic Mass. It is then placed on display in a little standing chamber slash holder called a monstrance. A monstrance. You can go online and see there's different um, variations of what these monstrances are. Usually, it's uh, a gold stand with a starburst, you know, thing, you know, of gold, and in the middle there's a a, a window a circular window and after the wafer is transformed into the literal body of christ that wafer is taken and there's a little opening and it's dropped into the monstrance where it is now shown is you can be seen through that little glass circular window and then it is put on display because it is the lord jesus christ in truth to be worshipped they are now worshipping the catholic faithful they are worshipping this wafer that has now been in their theology transformed into the literal body of Christ put on display to be worshipped as Jesus Christ in Roman Catholic theology the Eucharist which by the way means Thanksgiving also called Holy Communion in Catholic theology the Eucharist is efficacious what does that mean It means it has the power to produce a desired effect. The power to produce a desired effect. In the case of the Catholic Mass, it has the power to earn installments of grace, which, along with keeping the other sacraments, accrue, as we talked about last week to end our our study. Um, These installments of grace, which are acquired over the course of a Catholic's life by going to Mass, keeping sacraments, uh, partaking of the Eucharist, so on and so forth. Uh, these, these all will um, uh, allow you to, the Catholic, to, uh, to accrue these uh, installments of grace. And the idea is that someday they will have enough installments of grace whereby they can purchase salvation. They can purchase their salvation. Uh, only for the faithful Catholic who remains in good standing with the church is this possible for. But um, if you're a Catholic in good standing no mortal sins on your soul, you're a faithful uh, attendant of church, mass, uh, the sacraments, and various other, keeping the feast days, holy days, and so on, um, then there's a good chance by the end of your life you will have uh, accrued enough installments of grace to purchase your salvation. Roman, in Roman Catholicism, salvation is sacramental. Sacramental. In other words, it's, parte- it's participation in a ritual that... Uh, earns something, earns you something. As opposed to what the Bible actually says about salvation, that it is a free gift we receive through our faith in Christ alone. Again, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we've all memorized it, okay? The Catholic Church defines grace, which the Bible defines as a gift. So when the Bible says we are saved by grace, that means God is offering us a gift. We receive it by faith, and that's it, right? It's not of works, lest anybody should boast. It's totally a gift of God, right? But the Roman Catholic Church has redefined grace. It's not a gift. It's uh, something you, you do to earn salvation. So grace is really earning your salvation. It's where you are keeping certain commandments and ordinances and sacraments, uh, whereby you, know, you are earning installments of grace that accrue until you can purchase your own salvation. In Roman Catholicism, salvation is something that you earn. When Catholics partake of the Eucharist, they believe that they are literally consuming the body of Jesus Christ and that by ingesting the Eucharist, in other words, eating the body of Christ, which is what they believe it is now, they believe that this brings them everlasting life. You see why I say I love Catholics, but I hate the Roman Catholic Church? There's wonderful people in the church. There, there are Roman Catholics that are a lot better than me. I think they love God more than I do. They serve Him more faithfully than they serve than I do. That doesn't mean they're saved, though. And, and why aren't they saved? Because their church has not taught them the truth. The Roman Catholic Church had a deceitful beginning. It has a corrupt, wicked history. Yes, there are good Catholics. But the popes, the office of pope often went to the highest bidder. And somebody has said, some of the popes were the greatest evil monsters that ever walked the face of the earth. More than one husband broke into his bedroom to find his wife in bed with one of these popes. They were wicked, corrupt people who were not saved vicars of Christ. Give me a break. But Catholics are taught when they partake of the Eucharist that they are literally consuming the body of Jesus Christ and that by ingesting the Eucharist, they believe that this brings them everlasting life. To justify this belief... They point to Jesus' words himself, his own words, in John's Gospel, chapter 6. Why don't you turn there? You can read the whole chapter on your own. I'll draw your attention to verse 48. John 6, 48, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jump over to verse 51 if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread that i will give for the life of the world is my flesh and so the roman catholic church takes these words of jesus literally as referring to his physical body which the bread and wine during the mass are transformed into uh, the body and blood of christ and then ingested to the receiving of communion we evangelicals believe that the lord's supper is special We believe it's spiritual, but we don't believe that the bread and wine are transubstantiated into the physical, literal body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that. We believe it's a representation, not an actual transformation, right? I mean, Christ cannot be sacrificed again and again for sin since the Bible clearly teaches, I will read these to you, stay in John 6. Christ cannot be sacrificed again and again for sin since the Bible clearly teaches, Hebrews 10, verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified, set apart, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ was slain once for all time and for all people. Hebrews 9:28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, And then, of course, John 19, verse 30, a complete uh, contradiction of this idea of continual sacrifice. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. It is finished. And I've said this before. Let me say it again. Praise God he didn't say it's almost finished. I did my part. Now it's up to you. I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for you. You know, I got, I got, I got you the ball down by the, 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 two yard line. You gotta just take it in. I did most of the work. You gotta take it in, and enter into salvation through your efforts. Now he said, "It is finished. Work is done. Payment is made in full." The plain meaning of the words of Jesus the night before the cross, during the uh, last supper. When he said, he broke the bread, this is my body. When he gave them the cup of wine, this is my blood. All right? You can read about this in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. And then Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 5. But when Jesus said that, here's what I believe he was actually saying. And, and I think all evangelicals believe this. This bread represents my body. And this wine represents my blood. There are many reasons, guys, for insisting on this interpretation, that that was is the correct interpretation. I'll give to you what one author is, and I know we've strayed a little bit, but we're talking about why this church in Thyatira, Jesus came down so hard on them, and then we look at church history and realize they actually represent the medieval Roman Catholic Church, and we still have the Catholic Church here today, and many people attending the Catholic Church. We need to spend just a little time on this okay but this idea that jesus was not saying this is literally my body literally my blood the bread and the wine he was saying this bread represents my body this wine represents my blood why do we know that that's the correct interpretation one author said first of all the disciples to whom jesus gave the bread and wine were jews and jews had been taught that it was sinful to eat flesh with the blood in it from the time they were just young kids deuteronomy 12 verses 23 to 25 teaches if they had been taken if they had taken christ's words literally they would have been startled or more probably shocked by his words and yet there was nothing in the narrative to suggest this reaction the disciples saw no change in the bread or wine nor would they have expected to and therefore they would have understood jesus words to be figurative just as many of his other sayings were figurative. Number two, the doctrine of the Incarnation teaches that the Son of God took on himself a true human body, and it is the nature of physical bodies that they cannot be in more than one place or exist in more than one one form at a time. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he was before the disciples in true physical bodily form. And if he was present bodily his body could not have been present in the bread nor his blood in the wine at that time as well besides Jesus said you will see me no more until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord of course the second coming is in view which destroys the idea of worshiping Christ in a monstrance that's not the Jesus you're not you're not going to see me again until you say Blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord as he's coming back to the earth at his second coming. Thirdly, the author says the statement, This is my body is no different from many other metaphorical statements that occur throughout the Bible, such as the seven good cows are seven years. Genesis 41 verse 26. You are the head of gold. Daniel chapter 2 verse 38. The field is the world. Matthew 13 38. That rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 4. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, Revelation 1, verse 20. I am the door, John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the true vine, John 15, verse 1, and so on. Again, when Roman Catholics contend that Jesus was speaking literally, of eating his body and drinking his blood here in John chapter 6, which they say they do when they take communion, because, of course, the bread and wine are transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ, so they believe that they're actually eating his flesh, drinking his blood, uh, because they say John 6, and John 6, he he told us this is what we're doing. When you have a Roman Catholic friend that tells you that, make sure you point them to John 6, 63. They love to quote John 6. Well, have them take a good hard look at John 6, verse 63. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits what? Nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. This proves that Jesus wasn't speaking literally of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. He was speaking figuratively and metaphorically. Guys, the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church isn't limited to the worship of the Eucharist. Again, the Roman Catholic Church is heavily into idolatry in the areas of saints, statues, relics, to be kissed and trusted in, as well as we have just talked about, the worship of Mary as the Queen of Heaven, which comes right out of Babylonian worship and is forbidden by God. Pastor Chuck in commenting on this he said and i quote you see the church is married to jesus christ even as israel was married to god and married to jesus christ were to be totally faithful to him and worshiping him and the worship of anything else constitutes spiritual fornication now god said to the children of israel thou shalt have no other gods before me you're not to make any graven image or likeness of things that are in heaven or things that are on the earth, or to bow down to them to worship them. In other words, Chuck said the prohibition of icons under the law. Now, with Jezebel, she brought all of these, uh, all of these little idols of Baal. People had them in their homes. The introduction of these little idols, and, and the worship, uh, and the worship, the looking at uh, to them for help and guidance and uh, so we see the introduction of images idols that are set up within the church around the church likenesses of Jesus likenesses of Mary likenesses of the saints venerated by the people end quote. and he goes on look let me just finish by saying this i think everybody in this room would say yeah that's terrible what the roman catholic church does that that's encouraging The worship of idols, statues, and images, and icons, and all these, that's just terrible. I I know that that is wrong. Of course it's wrong. What we often don't realize is how much we are into idolatry and and are blinded to it. Didn't John end his first epistle by saying, my little children, keep yourselves from idols? He's talking to the church. Well, what do you mean, John? I don't bow down and worship A graven image? No, but do you worship your bank account? Do you worship that shiny vehicle in your driveway, you know, with those four rims and race car tires and things? Do you worship your house? You know how many people are not in church on Sunday morning because they're worshiping at the Home Depot? They live for their house. Okay, to beautify your house, fix your house up, no problem with that. But some people live for their house. There are so many things that people... Now, I'm talking about people in the church. The world, they worship all kinds of things. They worship the the God of money and power and pleasure and all kinds of things. But as Christians, we... And again, these letters are a mirror for us to look into. To see if we're guilty of any of these things, myself included. As somebody has said, it's amazing how awful my sins look when you're committing them. Now, when I'm committing them, I don't look so bad. So I give myself a lot of grace and mercy. But when you're committing, oh, you know how astute people are picking out the faults and flaws in others? totally blind to themselves, as somebody said when you point a finger at somebody else, you got three pointing back at yourself, but we're blind to that, right? We have to understand that there are things in our lives that we we love more than we should, maybe even love more than Jesus, I don't know. We would never say that, and maybe in our heart we don't really believe that, but our lives reflect something different, that we spend an inordinate amount of time on certain hobbies and things, Certain passions that get us up in the morning, there are things that are not God. And I don't know what those are in your life. I don't know what, and I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you that you can't have a hobby, you can't, you know, play golf, or you can't have a, a, a boat to take out, you know, from time. I'm not saying that. But we have things in our lives that are competing with our love for Jesus. And that, that's the issue. As long as we love Jesus with all of our heart, you can have other interests, but not other loves. And that's the problem. And then sometimes those other loves become, they start getting put, we start putting them before Jesus. All the while saying, Lord, you know I love you. Be like a husband saying to his wife, I know I'm cheating on you with five other women, but you know I love you. You know, I, you, you know you're know you my girl. Well, Christians in their heart, they don't realize they're saying that everything to Jesus. Now, Lord, you know, I got these other loves, but you're my first love. I love you more than anything. That's not true. He knows it's not true. Maybe we don't, but he does. So we have to take inventory. All right, we're in a very tough letter. He hits this church hard. And now as we apply it to ourselves, looking at ourselves through it, like we're looking in a mirror, it hits us hard. And that's good. It's not to bring condemnation. That's not the point. Is to bring you know reconciliation, to so get our our loves our first love where it should be to Jesus, where everything else flows from that. And if you really love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind—I mean, really—are in love with Jesus, you'd be surprised how things don't. Some things don't matter anymore. Things that are not wrong. Now, some of you remember my uncle Art. He loved the Lord, didn't he? Before he got saved, he was a sports nut. He'd work all night. He was the manager of the bowling alley. Before he was the manager, he was actually the um, mechanic. And he'd work all night, have the radio going to these sports stations, you know, call in shows. And they'd, they'd ask questions or they would pose, you know, little trivia things. And he'd call in and they would, they knew him. They said, oh, it's art from the bowling alley, you know. I remember after he was saved for a while, I asked him a sports question. I said, have you, have you been watching this or that lately? He said, no. I just have no interest anymore. He was always in the Bible. He's always at Bible study. He was always, he'd drive around his community, stop at the drugstore. The drug he'd witness to the pharmacist. And he was always going around trying to spread the gospel. It wasn't that sports were evil. It's just they didn't interest him anymore because his first love was Jesus. And may God give us the grace to make Jesus our first love. It's not about taking stuff away. It's about loving Jesus so much stuff, other stuff doesn't really matter. Not that you can't be involved with it. It just, you know, when it comes down to it, Lord Jesus, you're my first love. I love serving you. I love spending time in your word with you, and so on. All right, we will finish this letter next week and probably start the letter to Sardis. So come on back as the Lord hopefully will continue to bless our studies in his word. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for these two chapters in your word. And how sometimes, Lord, they're not easy to read because they step on our toes. As we read these letters and see what these churches were involved in, some of the things we can say, hey, uh, I'm doing well in this area. And then sometimes we say, no, I'm not doing so well. I'm kind of like this church in this bad area. Lord, give us grace that we would draw close to you, fall in love with you, that you would be our first love, our only true love, but um, that we would put nothing before you. Nothing would compete for our love for you. We just thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.